You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 13th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in the next 30 minutes, the official report into the crush that killed 159 people in Seoul is published. Senior officials are spared the blame and the families of the dead say it's not enough. Also ahead, the man accused of killing Japan's former Prime Minister is officially charged with his murder. We'll be in Tokyo for the latest. This has been the day that everyone's been working towards. And up till now, it's been an absolute disaster for the Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The families of the people killed in a crush last October in Seoul say the official report into the deaths of their loved ones falls short, leaving key questions unanswered. South Korean authorities say a lack of preparedness and an inadequate response are to blame. 159 people, many of them young, died after tens of thousands crowded into narrow alleyways to celebrate Halloween in October. Well, to tell us more about the release of today's report, I'm joined in the studio by Monocle Seoul correspondent Jay Kwok. Hello, Jay. Hi. Good to have you with us. Um, Just very briefly recap what happened on October the 29th. Sure. Um, So on... Yeah, last October, uh, a very popular weekend uh, gathering for uh, for Halloween uh, was there. And then it was, of course, celebrating um, the loosening, the, the final loosening of uh, the COVID-related restrictions. So it came to, you know, the tens of thousands of uh, people uh, rushing into a very, very small area. And then in the end, there was a small alley where about, you know, three meters uh, in, in width where you know, hundreds of people, um, you know, about 150 people died uh, after so many people were crushed into this small alleyway. So we had the report that has been, you know, waited for with an enormous amount of anticipation. It's out now. What does it say? Um, so this very long report was very meticulous about what actually happened and what led to the to the tragedy. And then it's a you know very long on technical details about you know how asphyxi- you know very graphic details about how asphyxiation happens and things like that. And then you know there were testimonies about uh, from the survivors saying that they felt like they were being floated into the air, and then they were gasping for uh, you know air for for several uh, minutes, and it was just very heartbreaking. Um, but unfortunately, the bruise families uh, are already saying that they're deeply disappointed by the report because it doesn't seem to place blame on the heads of the cabinet, you know, the the senior officials like a cabinet minister or a national police chief. Who does it lay responsibility with? Um, so the highest uh, highest level officials that they have placed blame on uh, are the district office head uh, as well as the district police chief. And they believe that that is not enough, that actually someone in what from the political sphere or a national figure needs to be held responsible for this. That's right. All the way up to the prime minister, they're calling. Right. OK, so so this is a this is obviously a, a, an expression of real anger. But is, do they actually have any sort of real grounds to have this grievance? I mean, ordinarily, would would the buck stop with the people who are now being held accountable? Or is there actually an absence here of real responsibility being found? 
Um, I mean, that's very hard to say because Korea has been suffering from a lax safety standard problem uh, for for many years. And there have been several national tragedies with hundreds of deaths uh, in each case. And every tragedy has been uh, followed by months and years of political wrangling over accountability. And then, um, so, I mean, from, from my... Uh, coverage of these tragedies. I think it's that a lot of Koreans tend to have overconfidence about what they can get away with. So, I mean, in in this particular report, they were saying that, you know, some of the senior officials went home early, although they were still in the system as, uh, as, as still being present. So things like that. I mean, some of them were, you know, everyone knew that there would be this massive crowd uh, that would gather during Halloween weekend, but then nobody actually decided to, you know, say... Say that okay, no, we actually need a special, you know, special special treatment or special prevention measure for this occasion. They needed a sort of a proper infrastructure of the right kind of people re- deployed in the right kind of control. Right, exactly. Yes, yeah, so so, sort of central central organization of the yeah. thing. And what evidence was there that what there was a sort of a central control to what was happening in, that night? Um, I mean, there were some protocols in place, and then there were also records of meetings that actually took place at the police agency and the district office about, okay, how do we deal with this oncoming, you know, traffic of people who will be crushed into this, you know, massive area, uh, who will be gathered into this massive area. Um, Although, but then it seemed like, uh, you know, the most of the records show that it was just very perfunctory. You know, everything was saying, okay, this this is what what will happen, what will take place, but then it'll be fine. And this... no. Sort of reflecting what you've just said a moment ago, that, that South Korea has an issue with safety standards. Yes, that's correct. Um, I th- and I mean, some some experts say that because you know we've experienced we have experience with a military dictatorship, so the police or other kinds of authority tend to be quite timid about how much power they can enforce in these kind of situations. And and when the rescue workers came, they were saying that you know some of the bystanders were saying that oh you know nice costume. So it's not not really being taken seriously enough. Exactly. Um, and you mentioned also that you have covered disasters previously in in South Korea. I mean, we we clearly need to think about was it the, the sinking was it the MV Sewol that, that went down in what was it 2014 yes. and it was what more than 350 people died That's right. in that in that passenger ferry which was awful because I think we, we all sort of watched it happen yeah. when you see what happened there and you see what happened in Seoul what are you are you beginning to draw comparisons I believe so I mean most people are drawing that comparison and I mean d- during that tragedy you know the captain and the crew actually left uh, yeah, left left the ship, um, you know, before any of the passengers were left off the, you know. So I mean, that kind of the protocol was obviously there, you know, but they were poorly educated about what should happen in such a situation because they've never experienced it. Um, and also, when the rescuers came, they never really decided to question, you know, whether these were the true, you know, passengers or or they were actually responsible for the safety of the passengers that went down down, down with the ferry. So yeah, I mean, it's such a tragedy. And then I mean, I. I even went on a ferry trip a year after that to 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 see if anything had changed. But then, no, all the passengers were drunk. Um, you know, so I mean, still there is so much uh, in desensitization about uh, disasters. So when you so, mean desensitization, so, ap- apart from the the families today yes. who have said this report does not get to the heart of what happened. Has there been any sense of any other reaction from other parts of society, perhaps from the you know young people who's who may have lost friends and relatives there or who may just have seen people like themselves being caught up in a tragedy 
Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, when you go out, definitely the mood is more somber. I mean, there are people still talking about it and there are people who are personally affected. I mean, it's probably two degrees of separation, even for me as well. Uh, so it feels very, very personal. But has that really stopped people from going to, you know, going to very tiny clubs with just one exit? If there is a fire, everyone dies, right? But then still, these kind of standards are not being, uh, you know, under undergoing a general review. So it has been, you know, this very uh, deep focus on this tragedy. But then when it comes to other uh, lax standards, I don't think we have gone, you know, it far enough to take care of them. When it when there's the inquiry. Inqu- into the sinking of the MV Sewol, there, there were um, resignations from senior political figures. This went, you know, sort of went right to the top in, in South Korea. Um, how much has this tragedy been politicised? Um, it seems that the opposition parties, I mean, unfortunately or fortunately uh, for, for some people, I, I think the safety minister is a very close confidant of the president, uh, President Yoon Sung-yeol. So I think he has been the symbol of what's, you know, what what's wrong with the current administration for a lot of people, though, you know, the brief families as well as the activists and the opposition parties. Um, so, I mean, they, we are going to see months, if not years, of political wrangling over, you know, whether he should go or not. Um, I mean, that's what's happened with every tragedy, unfortunately, that that's happened in the past. Jay Kwok, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. The time is just coming up to 12.10 here in London. Uh, in a moment, well, we'll be finding out about the uh, suspect in, in the murder of the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe facing formal charges. But first, let's get some of the day's other news headlines. Here's Sophie Monahun coombs Thanks, Emma. Russia claims its forces have captured the Ukrainian salt mine town of Solodar after a months-long battle. The Kremlin calls it an important step for its offensive and would mark a rare victory for Moscow after months of setbacks. Ukrainian authorities have yet to confirm Russia's claim. Police investigations into last year's Halloween crash that killed more than 150 people in South Korea have ended without recommendations that senior officials be punished. 23 lower-level officials have instead been referred for prosecution. Families of the victims want senior officials to be held responsible. The peak of China's current COVID-19 wave is expected to last two to three months, according to a top Chinese epidemiologist. Infections are expected to surge in rural areas where medical resources are scarce as millions travel for the Lunar New Year. Elvis Presley's only child, the singer-songwriter Lisa Marie Presley, has died at the age of 54. She reportedly suffered a cardiac arrest at her home in California. Presley was last seen in public on Tuesday at the Golden Globe Awards. Those are the day's main headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Sophie. Now, Japan has charged the suspect in the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe with murder after completing psychiatric assessments. A little earlier, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief Fiona Wilson joined Tom Edwards to talk about the case. Fiona began by recapping the latest developments. So Tetsuya Yamagami has been in detention in Osaka since July Uh, since the assassination of Shinzo Abe, former prime minister in July last year. And he was undergoing psychiatric evaluation. They wanted to see, is he fit to stand trial? And prosecutors today have indicted him. So he's been indicted for murder and uh, an interesting charge of violations of the firearms and sword law. And I don't know if you remember the footage, but he did actually 
you know, on film, he was seen holding a remarkable homemade weapon that was sort of made of tape and pipes. Um, and he'd been making these things at home. So, yeah, he's got those two charges now hanging over him. Uh, Fiona, can you tell us, do we know anything more about the probable timeline or some of the logistics that will be involved as this case continues? No, actually, this has been the big, you know, this has been the day that everyone's been working towards. And you know, up till now, it's been an absolute disaster for the Prime Minister Fumio Kishida because there's just been an avalanche of claims since this happened in July. At first, I don't know if you remember, but it sort of seemed quite a strange claim. He said he was targeting Shenzo Abe for his connection with this unification church. I think people sort of think of it as the Moonies church, but um, it wasn't very clear what exactly was the connection. And, you know, it turned out that Yamagami's story is actually really, really sad. Um, his mother had donated huge amounts of money to the church. Um, his father, who'd committed suicide, had, there'd been insurance payments. They'd gone to the church. He had to cut short his education. His elder brother subsequently committed suicide and he himself um, attempted to commit suicide. Um, when he was a member of the uh, Maritime Self-Defence Forces. So it's a very, very sad story, uh, and it's been going on for years. And clearly, he was thinking of some way he could take revenge on this unification church. He thought about, you know, attacking the head of the church. That wasn't possible because there were no visits from South Korea, which is where this church comes from. There were no visits during the pandemic. So he'd been biding his time. And then he saw this... Um, congratulatory speech that uh, Shinzo Abe had made. He wasn't a member of the church, but he gave a speech, um, you know, passing on a message to the church in 2021. Yamagami saw this and that's what apparently uh, triggered his uh, his desire to to take revenge by shooting Shinzo Abe. Fiona, it's, it's kind of strangely compelling the background of, about the, the Unification Church, the Moonies, as, you, as you've said. And I believe that Abe had, is it, I think it's his grandfather, maybe he was also a prime minister back in the day, who there's suggestions that he was involved in helping the church kind of get its roots into Japanese culture. This is going right back to the, to, to the 60s. And there is this um, ongoing interest, I suppose, in how they pressured the adherence to the church and its, and its sort of uh, workings into making these big, big donations. How is it viewed there? Because it is considered a, a cult. Is that fair to say in, in Japan? How, how much sort of debate is there about what, what it represents and what should be done about some of these claims? I mean, it, it, the debate is absolutely massive. You, you can't believe how much this whole incident, obviously everyone was absolutely shocked by the shooting initially. Um, subsequent to that, what's emerged is, is the very close links between Shinzo Abe's party, that's the LDP, Liberal Democratic Party, and Fumio Kishida, the current prime minister, that's his party. The links between the LDP and the Unification Church, not so much that they were members, but they were using um, volunteers. Uh, they were they were almost like a, a you'd have like a trade union block. Well, the, the Unification Church members were being treated the same way. They would vote um, for for certain candidates, and it turned out an investigation went underwent about you know how close were the links, and out of about 379, I think uh, politicians, LDP politicians. It turned out that 179 had links, had interacted with the church. Mm. We've had resignations. It's been a really, really long and interesting process. And it's it's absolutely rocked the LDP to its core. And, yeah, the repercussions are being felt um, constantly. We, we've got a new law now in Japan, which, which prevents um, financial exploitation of people by religious and other groups. Um, and, I, you know, I think Kishida is doing what he can to uh, to limit the damage to his party.
Well, let's talk a bit about Kishida then. You already mentioned he's under pressure. Uh, I think plummeting popularity doesn't even really cover it, does it, Fiona? And this is because of, I guess, yes, the handling of that controversy. But even, you know, down to the detail, he was quite insistent, wasn't he, on the sort of state funeral for, for Abe, which was controversial for all of the, the, the above reasons. Um, where, where does Kishida go from here? Yeah, I mean, Kishida, um, you may have noticed, has been on this world tour. <laughs> He's been, uh, you know, drumming up support for Japan, for East Asia, among the G7 nations. Japan's hosting the uh, G7 uh, summit in May. So he's been doing that. But no, I mean, it's been a disaster for him. This whole business has really um, pulled his ratings down. There are very important local elections here in April. And he's obviously desperately trying to show that he's, you know, he's he's really on top of this issue. I think what he's got to look ahead to really is a uh, general election, you know, the big election in uh, which will be October 2025 seems like a long way off. But, you know, this is so deep rooted, this problem. And, you know, the polls are absolutely terrible. They, they should just be thankful that the opposition is in such disarray in Japan. Um, otherwise, I think he'd really be in deep water now. That was Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief Fiona Wilson there. She was talking to Tom Edwards a little earlier. You with the briefing on Monocle 24. Now, how many of us, I wonder, raise an eyebrow or exchange glances with a fellow passenger when we board a Boeing 737 MAX? After all, it was the aircraft which crashed not once but twice due to a programming fault in its computer systems, leading to the deaths of 346 people. Well, the aircraft is now being reintroduced to airline fleets with computer glitch fixed, and now China Southern Airlines has scheduled two Boeing 737 MAX flights for departure today. A return to Chinese skies is a significant move for Boeing. Well, Murdo Morrison is the Head of Strategic Content at Flight Global. Hello, Murdo. Hello. Good to have you back on Monocle 24. Um, Well, we've checked Flight Radar 24 and the two flights, not one, but two flights seems to have taken off, uh, including one to Wuhan, which just made me think that that's a brave lot of passengers who are travelling today. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is is very significant, as you said, because uh, China has been a holdout, really, uh, in terms of reinstating the MAX, which which came back to airline service in, in most of the rest of the world in 2021. Uh, you referred to the, the grounding, which was a worldwide grounding from uh, March 2019 until the end of 2020. Uh, it came back US first and then throughout most of the rest of the world in 2021. Um, China officially lifted its ban on the uh, on the max uh, about 12 months ago but for some reason and it's never really been quite clear i mean part of the reason is the ongoing uh, zero covid policies which all the way through last year at least they were they were lifted recently of course but uh, they have you know kept a, a lid on uh, on chinese uh, domestic travel but it's not quite clear why uh, why chinese airlines have waited so long uh, to 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 bring back the max. Uh, I mean, some have suggested that this is um, a, d- a deliberate choice to delay because of strained trade relations between the US and China. That this has actually got nothing to do with aviation. Well, of course, that's the other complication. You know, um, tensions, trade tensions, political tensions have been simmering uh, with China for most of the well for years, but for have really sort of. Um, uh, got worse over the last 12 months with, uh, you know, there was there was Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole uh, 
the, the tension has has increased. And yes, you know, there there is a, there are. It's never been said officially uh, by by the Chinese, but uh, there are certainly reports or thoughts that. Uh, the delay in the in the reinstatement of the uh, of the max has got something to do with uh, with the tensions. So the acceptance of the model is a is a big move because I think it was before COVID. Well, not before COVID, before the grounding in 2019, following the two crashes, wasn't it that Chinese airlines were buying what every one in three 737 Max models? Yes, something like that. I mean, China is is a hugely important market for the whole of the aviation industry, but uh, but for Boeing, uh, it was it was very very important. I think Boeing um, going into uh, the, the the grounding and through the COVID crisis, Boeing had something like one hundred and thirty eight uh, maxes that were destined for China. Uh, put into storage. That's round about half of all the uh, Max aircraft that they had in storage at the end of last year, which was a sort of overhang from the COVID crisis. So I think Boeing's hope is that, um, you know, and it's going to be a very, very long process. These are the first flights that uh, have have happened in China of the Max in in whatever it is, almost almost four years. Um, we're still a long way off deliveries restarting. And in fact, Boeing have said that a lot of these aircraft, the 138, they're in storage. You know, they can only keep them in storage for so long. If other airlines uh, want them, they're they're going to be prepared to uh, to deliver them to, to, to elsewhere. So, um, you know, Chinese airlines can't necessarily hold on to these orders forever. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens this year, whether the resumption in in air travel in China will will really sort of spur the airlines on to uh, uh, put their existing maxes back into service, but but more importantly to start taking deliveries of um, of many of the uh, the aircraft that they have on order, and and perhaps even placing uh, placing new orders. Generally speaking, how difficult a job has Boeing had to persuade people of its safety? I I think that it was it was difficult. I mean, as as you said there in your in your intro, two crashes in the space of about six months was was just you know horrendous. Aircraft just rarely crash in the modern era, and because this was a computer glitch, it was it was it was something that was uh, you know. Damaged Boeing's reputation incredibly, uh, and that was before COVID compounded everything for the for the whole industry. So, so yes, I think now as Bo- as Maxes have gone back into service, as people are flying them, the glitch has been fixed. You know, I think confidence has come back, and like all things, you know, it will it will fade into into memory. Um, if you go into you know lots lots of the part, parts of the world now, including the US, you know you're flying on a on a Max. So I think they've probably got over that bit. That's just one of many many problems and challenges that Boeing have at the moment. But I think uh, convincing people to get back on board Max aircraft is probably something that they've they've now overcome. Murdo Morrison, thank you so much as ever for joining us on the briefing. You're listening to Monocle Twenty Four. Monocle's free-to-subscribe daily email newsletters, the Monocle Minute and Weekend Edition, deliver headlines and a swathe of recommendations from our editors, correspondents and bureau. 
You can also browse a menu of radio highlights and Monocle films. While the focus is on news and comment during the week, our weekend newsletters deliver great columns from Andrew Tuck on Saturdays and Tyler Brule on Sundays. Cultural highs, media diets and far-off newspapers, recipes to cook at home. It's a fun take on weekend living. Head to monocle.com forward slash minute to be part of the conversation. Twelve twenty-four here in London. Let's hear now from Monocle's Andrew Muller as he brings us his weekly dispatch of everything we know now that we didn't seven days ago. We learned this week that the United States Republican Party had concluded that submitting to the will of someone called McCarthy couldn't possibly go wrong a second time. This is a profound and astute historical reference to Senator Joseph McCarthy, see, the paranoid red-baiting tub-thumper who flourished circa the 1950s before the patience of his colleagues and the resilience of his liver wore thin. Yeah. We learned that whatever other drawbacks and detriments may be legitimately ascribed to modern-day Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy, and we don't have all day, he does not lack what his friends and family may describe as persistence and what others might well call an absolutely boneheaded refusal to look reality in the face. We learned that Congressman McCarthy will be the new Speaker of the House of Representatives only after 15 goddamn rounds of voting. That was easy, huh? (laughs) I never thought we'd get up here. Don't get too comfortable, champ. We learned once again from this absurd saga, although Speaker McCarthy and indeed his party as a whole still seem like they haven't, something of the perils of indulging the unhinged in the hope that you can co-opt them or that they'll calm down eventually. Spoiler alert, Mr. Speaker, as of this broadcast, you can't and they won't. For we learned that the forces thwarting McCarthy's long-nurtured hopes of clutching the gavel that's the one, were not in fact his official opposition, the Democratic Party, however much they might have enjoyed the show, but his internal opposition, the Republican Party's Freedom Caucus, an association of kooks, cranks, weirdos, foil hatters and dingbats, whose theme song could appropriately be one long howl at the moon. We, for one whimsical news monologue, look forward to seeing how Speaker McCarthy assembles a coherent apparatus of governance from such components as these. There's possible satanic worship and maybe that all these scary things that that people talk about on what's considered conspiracy conspiracy sites and conspiracy theories really may be true. That was Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, representative of the 14th District of Georgia. And well done there, the 14th District of Georgia. But in the interests of bouncing this week's monologue along while maintaining at least some measure of structural integrity, we also learned that Green had become the unwitting star of one of those reliably hilarious episodes in which some or other conservative politician appropriates the work of some or other not-conservative musician and gets yelled at by the artist in question as a consequence. (laughs) 
These always work well for us as one of the more time-consuming aspects of putting these monologues together is coming up with the appropriate background music and or noises, so when a given thing we learned also furnishes an inbuilt soundtrack, it does save us an awful lot of stuffing around. Another busy week for the general muttered agreement crew whose devotion to their duty is an example to us all. Anyway, now playing behind us is Still D.R.E., a 1999 hit for Dr. Dre, lead vocals by Snoop Dogg. Dr. Dre is the name, I'm ahead of my gang, still puffing my leaf, still with the beats. We learned that Congresswoman Green felt that this tune was an apt backing for an idiotic video she posted online in the wake of Speaker McCarthy's torment, and we, and indeed she, swiftly learned that Dr Dre thought otherwise, and we learned that Dr Dre's learned friends seem like people you would rather have on your side than the other side, as they phrased their cease and desist letter thus. You are wrongfully exploiting this work to promote your divisive and hateful political agenda. One might expect that as a member of Congress, you would have a passing familiarity with the laws of our country. It's possible, though, that laws governing intellectual property are a little too arcane and insufficiently populist for you to really have spent much time on. Which, to reduce this highfalutin legalese to terms that Congresswoman Green might just about comprehend, is a coat hanger from the top rope. If we have learned one thing about Congresswoman Green, however, it is that Congresswoman Green never learns, and she will doubtless be further delighting the listeners and indeed the compiler of these monologues in due course. And we learned, much to our regret, that these six sighing strings have been forever silenced. That's the guitar solo from the 1972 Stevie Wonder deep cut Lookin' For Another Pure Love, played by Jeff Beck, who left us this week, aged 78. It is, if we're honest, an excruciatingly hipster choice of tribute, picked by way of reminding of the sprawling nature of the incalculably influential career of a guitarist probably best remembered for loudly and forcefully kicking out the jams with 1960s proto-rockers the Yardbirds, which we shall get to presently, fear not. Jeff Beck plays us out this week, duelling with Jimmy Page on a Yardbird song which feels, right now, appropriately titled Stroll On. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. You made me cry, but tell me you didn't see Oh, I love no more And my thanks to Andrew Muller for that. And that's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producer, Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing's back on Monday at the same time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend.